Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast into the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, as the scene switches back to Moses with God on the mountain, Go down because your people whom you have brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you a great nation. So God was willing to start all over. Made the promise to Abraham and his children, but he'll just wipe that clean and he'll start over again. There are some things that I want us to learn from this story. Obviously, the overarching theme here that's going to carry us through that, the entire message is one of idolatry. I think the Holy Spirit can speak to us today in, to the degree that we will let our hearts be sensitive to Him to help us understand, are there any places in our life that are approaching idolatry? And if so, then what? would be our response to that. But very quickly, let's move to the lessons that I think we learned from studying this story. And the very first point that I want to make today is that it seems obvious, not only from this story, but just from an observation of people and humanity throughout history, Humankind has a driving urge to worship something. Now, we look at Israel's history in particular, and we see they have this odd fascination with idolatry. And it goes back 
to hear, which is in, inexplainable. When you consider where Israel came from and all the experiences they had, to reading what we just read, and them falling so deep and so quickly defies explanation. Except it really does depict what we do as people and how quickly we fall and how terribly far we can go. So Israel's history reveals this weird fascination with idolatry. And you can read whenever they're on fire for God, they're, they're doing pretty good, worshiping Jehovah. And when they begin to backslide, one of the elements of their backsliding always seems to be, let's go and get us some idols and build them and start worshiping them. We're not so blatant in our idolatry. We don't have these little idols in our closet that every time we're mad at God or feel backslidden, we go and get the idol out and we bow to it. But Israel was, for the most part, doing just that. They kept returning to idolatry. God would chastise them. They would come back to him. Then over the course of time, they would go back to idolatry. And God had given them many warnings about this. To separate themselves from idolaters, to have nothing to do with them. Do not become a cult, part of their culture. Don't intermarry with them. Don't be influenced by them. You're a special people. You worship me and me alone. And he had encouraged them and directed them along these lines many times. But they kept failing. So here they are bouncing back and forth, in and out, on this idolatry business. And tracing it back to this story I just read that I said defies explanation, comprehension. How can they possibly do this considering what they have already experienced, what they've been through? But they did. The fact remains they did. And we can see God's response to this, how very angry and insulted he was by what they did. Now, they had spent several years, several, a few centuries actually in, in Egypt. God brought Abraham out of a heathen land, a land where idolatry was no doubt the, the rule of the day. He brought him out of that, and he went from being uh, an idolater, a polytheist, into being a monotheist and worshiping the God who had revealed himself to Abraham. So that was, that was gone for Abraham. He became a believer through his experience. This is the Most High God. And he passed that on to Isaac. And Isaac inherited that respect for Jehovah God. And Isaac passed that on to Jacob. And Jacob wasn't an idolater. He knew who Jehovah God was, and he worshipped them. And he passed that on to his sons. And so as the clan of Jacob and their family of 70 moves into the land of Egypt, they move into the land of Egypt as monotheists, as worshippers of Jehovah God. 
And they go into a land that knows nothing about Jehovah. They are idolaters. They are polytheists. They have all kinds of different gods. And you know the story of the plagues that came against Egypt, that those plagues were a direct affront and assault to their gods that were supposed to be watching out for them. And it just ruled them and rendered them impotent against the power of Jehovah. Into the land of idolatry, 70 people coming in, believers in Jehovah. And somewhere along the line, we don't know that the Hebrews literally became idolaters there, but they sure had centuries of exposure to it. Some may have begun to become idolaters. But somehow the knowledge of Jehovah God that came from Isaac, that came to uh, uh, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, that went into Egypt, began to wane in their mind, in their lives, in their culture. And God chose Moses to go back and say, I need you to reintroduce those people to the God of their fathers. It seems like they've lost track of me. And you know the story. What a phenomenal, outstanding, impressive way in which Jehovah revealed himself to the children of Abraham, the children of Jacob. The children of, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And by the way, did you ever notice that whenever Jacob uh, has his name changed to Israel, it's always when he's in a good mood, he's Israel. And it's always when he's depressed, he's Jacob. This is schizophrenia. It's like you husbands and wives, you wake up sometimes and you play this game that says, guess what mood I'm in today? Guess who I am today? You didn't ever know who you were talking to with Jacob and Israel. If you read the biblical account, Jacob was dying. But whenever they brought the good news of Joseph and they got ready to move, Israel got up and lived. It's just that quick. And in go the Jehovah worshipers. They lose track of Jehovah. And the children of Israel learn again who Jehovah God is, the one that will what? Deliver you. And that's, that's what he says when he gives them the command. I am the Lord God Jehovah. I am the God that brought you out of Egypt. Not the God of the sun, not the God of the ocean, not the God of the rivers, not the God of the crops. I am the God that delivered you. And they follow this God through Moses out of the land of Egypt, freed from slavery. Who would have ever thought there was any way out of this mess? How could they dream at night any plan to get their people free? Perhaps they could come up with a plan to free one or two people and escape. But it probably wouldn't have worked. But how do you free a million and a half men? And then who knows how many there was with children and wives. The number far exceeds it. How do you get them all out? How do you sneak out? Moses had a plan. How are we going to get out of here? We're just going to walk out that gate. 
And God prepared the way so they could. They just walked out with Pharaoh's reluctant permission. Go, get out of here. I've had it with frogs and lice and blood. Go. Of course, he had a change of heart. Coming out of that land, following God, Jehovah God, that they had now come to learn who the God was that brought their father Abraham out of the land of the heathens. The God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the remembering now, oh, this is who our ancestors told us about. And they're learning God all over again. And you would have thought when God brought them out of the land of Egypt and, and through his spokesman Moses, he splits the water, dries the land, and walks them across and destroys Pharaoh's army who is in chase, in pursuit. You would have thought that this company who wanders in the wilderness and has this visible testimony, this visible guarantee of this huge pillar of a cloud that is always there, the presence of God. They could see a manifestation of his presence. At night nighttime, don't worry, it's a pillar of fire. You'll still see it. It's still there. How can you comprehend these people whose experience was to say we're thirsty? No problem. I'll gush it out of a rock. You'll drink, your animals will drink, everybody will be provided for. And they see these miracles with their eyes. We're hungry. Don't worry, I'll grow some manna for you. And every day they could collect manna and eat it. Middle of the desert. How do you grow things in the desert? We're tired of manna. I'll give you some quail. Miracle after miracle after miracle. How? Can they witness that? And ever come to the conclusion, we don't know if this God is real or not. And so they come to this point in this passage where they make this quick flip-flop and God's offended. It's a monumental offense against God. And considering that, I say it's no wonder that the enemy tempts people with idolatry because he knows how insulting idolatry is to God. Let me define idolatry. I could go on and on with people trying to define idolatry, but just, just give it a little framework here that we can work with. The Heidelberg Catechism says, Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside the only true God. Another definition just simply says giving divine honor to anyone or anything except God. That doesn't mean we can give honor to God and he's satisfied divine honor. Therefore, once he has been given what is his, we can also go give some divine honor to something else. God's a jealous God. You'll worship me only. You'll not worship anything else. Yet we're living in an age of a lot of worship, aren't we? Hero worship. People get all nervous when, when superstars come around. 
You could have a movie star come to the Quad Cities and they would draw a lot of people, want to go and touch them and see them. Somebody of great fame and great status. People just gather there in awe. And I don't know how far you can carry that before God begins to think, you don't give that kind of worship to me. You don't turn out in droves to see me on Sunday. But you'll turn out in droves to see a person whose face is splashed over the screen. And God measures what we do with things against what we do with Him. God measures our fascination with people or objects compared to our love with Him. You men and women, you get it. You husbands and wives, you get it. You really do. Anytime your spouse begins to spend more time with something or some activity or some person than they spend with you, you've got a problem with that. There was a a man that was so intent, sincerely intent on being super pastor that he put in all kinds of ungodly hours into his church. And he came home and find his, found his wife weeping one night. And he said, what's wrong? What have I done? And she says, you spend so much time with the church. I feel like you're having an affair. Your mistress is your ministry. That's just one example of how we can become so preoccupied something in a, with something in our earthly relationships that the other one feels displaced. We, we do that pretty quick. It doesn't take a whole lot of convincing for us to say, I'm kind of second banana here. I want to be number one in your life. No matter what else you do, I'm not threatened as long as I know I'm number one in your life. But we guard that in our relationships, in our husband-wife relationship. But we've got to think in terms of God feeling the same way. There's a lot of things you can do. But I get kind of offended when you get excited over a lot of other things. You don't get excited over me. We've got to have God is number one, and he's always monitoring us. He's always auditing. Or we offend God. And furthermore, God says, it's not just a matter of making me number one. And then you can worship something else as number two, number three, subsidiary. He says, I want to be the only one you worship. Not the only one you know, not the only one you spend time with, the only one you worship. There will be no others. Paul says something about idolatry. He said a lot of things about idolatry, but one interesting verse is Philippians 3.19. And this is right after Paul in that, says in that famous passage that he forgets those things which are behind, and he's pressing forth towards a goal. And in that very inspiring passage, pressing towards the mark for the prize of the high calling, 
in Christ Jesus. And just a few verses after that, the tone of the chapter takes a totally different turn. And he's talking about these people. He said, you're saints, but you've got people that that are enticing you to follow them. And they're just, they're false Christians is what they are. And this is what he has to say about them in the 19th verse. He said, their end is destruction because their God is their belly, their appetites, their desires. Paul identified that very clearly to these people. Their God is not God. Their God is uh, sensuality. Their God is sensationalism. Their God is entertainment. Their God is whatever, whatever the carnal body and mind and spirit longs for. They are driven by their appetites, and that's their God. And you want to follow these people? They're false Christians. And he said, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Don't follow them, he says. He's warning the saints at Philippi. You can trust my example. You can follow me as I follow God. But don't follow these people. Their God is carnality. They're unbridled appetites. They brag about shameful things that they do. They're more focused on the things of this world than they are the things to come. And then John Calvin warned, we're all continually tempted to make temporal things into ultimate things. And that's another sly form of idolatry. Temporary things, making them into ultimate things. You just got to remember, this world is temporary. Your house is temporary. The things that you find so entertaining are temporary. All of your savings, all of your investments, they're temporary. But there are eternal things that are worth pursuing. And why do we get so fascinated with the temporary and become so disinterested in the eternal things? But we do. It's idolatry. No matter what form idolatry takes, we can define it. But no matter what form it takes, the truth remains that the practitioners of idolatry find it real hard to recognize. We can define it, but we don't see it clearly when we do it. We only see it clearly when somebody else is doing it. And no matter what form it takes, it's essentially nothing but a cheap substitute for God, and God's insulted. Now, I can't say that everybody physically has an, a little idol that they bow down to. I can't say that everybody has a ritual that they go through with their idol. I can't say that. Anything that displaces God is what? It's idolatry. He wasn't pointing to God at all. He was reaching out to something. You can, an idol can be nothing as long as you're worshiping it. You don't know what it is. It's out there somewhere, but I'm going to pay homage to it. It's an idol. It's idolatry. So we get this misplaced worship. Uh, idolatry is more than ritualistic worship. And when I say humankind has this urge to worship something, then to my mind, the case of atheist, because I argue with myself all the time. When I'm thinking, I usually win. So I'm arguing with myself, and I'm saying, oh, yeah? Well, what about atheists? And I had a good answer. 
One thing that cannot be debated, although we might debate that not everybody has this ritual in their worship of things or concepts. One thing that you cannot debate is very recently there's been a startup of atheist megachurches. Have you heard of them? Let it be known today, you first learned about this this morning at Westside. It's shocking what's going on. This concept started as kind of a joke. Two British comedians named Pippa Evans and Sanderson Jones decided that they wanted church too. This is not just going to be a market cornered by Christians. They don't get all the good stuff. We're going to have church too. So they announced we're starting an atheist church. And they had about, they started in an old abandoned church. They had about 400 people show up the first service. And it's, it, it's grown exponentially. Now it's a mega church. And now they're on a 40, I'm wording this carefully, 40 dates and 40 nights. Not 40 days and 40 nights, and it's a play on words. And they're doing a tour of the United States, and this started back in January. And they're raising money on this tour, and every place they go, they're announcing we're opening a, an atheist church. Uh, they went to California, Los Angeles, great place to go and start something like that. Got to go where the fish are, right? And in their opening service, they had about 400 people. Then they went to San Francisco, and they went to different places. And they're establishing these little atheist churches and raising money to, to be able to establish more and more atheist churches where people... They can describe. Uh, they go and they, they sing rousing, inspiring hymns. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult for me to understand. It's not Christian hymns. So I'm trying to comprehend. Yet they have these rousing hymns. They have testimonies. They have a sermon. They have fellowship. And it's growing. It's turning into a mega thing. Which whenever I read that, the first thing I want to do is I want to start thinking, God... What distinguishes my church from a bunch of atheists who want to get together and they want to clap their hands and want to sing loud and they want to get happy and they want to have fellowship and they want to have a good time and they want to plug in and be a part of their community and they want to help in community projects and matters. What separates my church from people who just want to get together and do that? And you know what? It's a real sobering question. What separates us from anybody else that wants to gather in anything's name or anybody's name or nobody's name and just have fellowship? And there's only one thing that can separate your church. And it just kind of goes back to like the example of Elijah on Mount Carmel and, and the great challenge that went on there. Anybody can build an altar. Anybody can make a sacrifice. But you've got to have the power of God there to come and show up. You have to have the fire to consume the sacrifice. You have to have God in your midst to make any significant difference in the gathering of people. We have to have God in our midst. And we can't just go away and talk theoretically about, wasn't it nice we felt God there today? Don't we want God to manifest himself somehow? Don't we want lives changed? Don't we want people healed? Do we still believe he's Jehovah God today? And if he shows up, shouldn't he be leaving a mark somewhere in our lives? We want God in our midst. We don't want this to be looking like an atheist church somewhere. So if we're going to do that, I think we'll have a responsibility 
not only before we come to church, to pray that God really shows up in a very special way, but to ask Him to manifest His presence in tangible ways that we can take forward from here in a testimony. God was there, but here's what He did for me. Changed lives. Healings. Miracles. Well, there was one atheist that wrote about this phenomenon of the... uh, atheist church and that atheist was critical and said isn't this kind of contradictory to the philosophy of atheists to have a church where you can do something spiritual when we don't believe there's anything spiritual about uh life we're we're just accidents that we're we're i mean they they want to believe that they're they're very good and kind and caring people but they're what's to be spiritual about it and so the atheist Herself, who wrote about this, says it's contradictory for an atheist to have a church. My point is, my premise, people have this urge to worship something, even as proven by the atheist megachurches. So I'm looking at what's the significance of of this idolatry in this, this opening passage we read. And my mind goes back to the Ten Commandments, two specific commandments, the first of the Ten Commandments, and the greatest commandment by Jesus. Now, the first commandment, those of you who memorized the Ten Commandments, is, I am the Lord your God. I am Jehovah. I am the one that brought you out of Egypt. And the command is, you shall not have any other gods besides me. Before me, alongside with me, other than me. I am the one that brought you out. I am the only one deserving of your worship. You will not have anything, anybody else that you worship. It's all mine. I'm the one that delivered you. I have a right to that. And the first thing they did when they had an opportunity to backslide is built a calf and bowed before it and said, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. Jaw-dropping failure. Can't even get your brain around. In direct contradiction to God's expectations for his people. Once again, we kind of have to sometimes put this on a human level to get the emotional impact that God is feeling. That if I had provided all of my life for my wife, and I'm not picking on her, I could reverse the situation. If she had provided all her life for me uh, and... and, uh, I could testify of the good things that that we have because of my wife. Or she could testify of the good things because of what I did. The hard work, the investments, the toil, the labor. And then stand up one day and pull up some stranger and say, everything that I've got in my marriage, I owe to this person right here. Uh, One of us, whichever instance was, is going to be terribly offended after all we've done in investing this and then all of a sudden attribute it all to somebody else. I had nothing to do with it. And this is exactly what Israel is doing with God as they build a golden calf and they get so crazy, so brain dead, they bow down and say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. All praise be to this God. And God stops the meeting on the mountain with Moses and said, Moses, we've got a problem. You need to get back down there to the camp right now. These people have just made a golden calf and they've declared that to be the God that delivered them. And he said, I don't like that. I am the God that brought you out of Egypt. You will have no... Here's, here's the deal. 
you will have no other gods before me. You worship me only. The newest, the, the, the greatest commandment in the New Testament. You love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. What else can you say? That kind of covers it all, doesn't it? If you love him with all your heart, there's no heart left to give that kind of divine love and worship to anything else. All your soul, on your mind, there's no mind, there's no soul left with which to give that kind of love to anything or anybody else. It all goes to God. Whenever they ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Very simple. God wants your entire devotion, your entire worship. You can't give it to anybody else. Now, here's just a a side note. And I questioned even maybe just taking this out to save time. But I'm not interested in saving time. You all know that about me. Time's cheap for me. Have you heard people try and define praise and worship? And it's always bothered me that they try to draw this dividing line between praise and worship because it blends so much together. Well, that's worship, but that's not praise. That's praise, but that's not worship. And it's, it's, they share a lot in common. But something dawned on me as I was putting this together that God demands we worship him and him only. But did you ever notice God doesn't demand we praise him? It says in the Bible to praise him, but it is always men telling other men, join me and let's praise God. Now, there's a, there's a reason why I'm making this distinction. Because uh, some of the Richard Dawkins and some of the leading antagonistic atheists against Christianity make the charge against God that he's some sort of an incorrigible egotist who demands people praise him all the time. He just has to have that support. To tell me how good I am. Tell me how good I am. No, God said all you have to do is just honor me as being the God that delivered you. Worship me and worship nobody else. That's his demand. But when it comes to what the Bible says about praise, it's always men saying, isn't God good? Won't you join together with me and let's praise him? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's biblical. When we're up here having worship and, and, and people are encouraging you to praise God, it's because we think he's worthy. He's worthy of our praise. Won't you join with me and let's praise him? And that's the way we encourage one another. And those who agree with that say, yeah, you're right. Let's both praise him right now. And we just take time to praise God. So it's not that he's an egomaniac. It's not that he's demanding. He knows that people come in right relationship with him will want to praise him and will encourage others. Let's all praise the Lord. And we will do that. That was free. The second point, and this is going to flow a lot faster now. This sermon was front heavy. The lesson we learn from this passage is the greatest manifestations of God's presence do not necessarily keep us from sin. Have you ever dreamed about how life-changing it might be to have a personal encounter with God? Many of you have. I have. I've dreamed sometimes, Lord, I hear these testimonies about people saying that they were in their bed sick, sleeping, having a vision, dreaming, whatever, and uh, Jesus walked through and came and visited them. They were at death's door, and Jesus came into the hospital and visited them. They were in danger, and Jesus showed up and revealed himself 
as Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and they had this encounter. And years ago, when I was younger in ministry, I'm thinking, God, I need a real good sermon. It would help if I could tell people I saw you. Wouldn't that be a great sermon? I'd never have gotten to see that kind of manifestation of God. But I always thought if I did, it'd be so much easier to live for him. It put every doubt aside. It would solidify my relationship with him. There'd never be a time that the old tempter could sit on my shoulder and say, are you really sure? Of course I'm sure. I saw him. Talk to him. I thought, how permanent establishing that would be to see God, to have this experience. Or we've prayed, some of you people, uh, you testify about God having done a miracle in your life. Uh, But very few of you have seen like a creative miracle. Or perhaps uh, creative would be you're missing an arm and God grows you an arm. That's a creative miracle. You know, you haven't seen many of these. It's more of the miracles I was sick and all of a sudden I felt better. But to see something, to see something happen in front of you, you think, God, if I could ever just see that. Now, I believe in you. I believe in miracles. But, Lord, if I could just see one of those things, I could preach. I could win people to you. I'd be so excited. I'd be turned on for you. I just want to see these things. The greatest manifestations of God's presence don't guarantee that you won't fail him. Israel came from the pillar of the cloud, the pillar of fire, the manna, the quail, the water, the miracles. They came from that, and the first chance they had, they're building a golden calf and the worshiping it because the great manifestations of God don't guarantee that you're always going to be faithful to him. You know what does guarantee it? The only thing that guarantees that you're going to hold on to God is you make the guarantee to yourself. That's it. God, if you never perform another miracle that I can ever validate, I'm going to serve you till I die. If you never heal me of another ailment, I'm going to believe in you until the day I die. If you never deliver me from another difficult situation, I'm going to live for you until the day I die. Because our life is so often based on contingencies with God. And when we come to these places where we, we, we need God so desperately, we try to bribe God. Lord, if you do this for me, then I will. You've done that? Don't look at me so pious. If you do this, God. There should be no if. Lord, this is what I'm asking. You invited me to ask. I believe in you. You can do all things. But if you don't, it doesn't make any difference. I'm not going away. I'm living for you regardless of what you do and how you manifest yourself in my life simply because I'm making up my mind. Our success in living for God comes only from one thing, is how you are determined to do that. And there's two things that drive us on. Number one, he is worthy of our worship and devotion. That never changes. He's always worthy. And number two, he paid a great price for me that I can never repay. And how overwhelming that display of love is. And those two two things propel us forward. Point number three. A weak priesthood will ultimately bow to the will of the people. If there's a problem in Christianity today, 
in the United States, some of the problem we have with that has to trace back to what's coming from the pulpit. A weak priesthood, weak spiritual leadership will never develop strong spiritual people. Compromising priesthood will never develop anything greater than themselves. Just a compromising congregation. Preachers who will preach what is popular instead of what is true will never develop super saints. And we could go on about how there is corruption in the pulpit and how the priesthood is corrupt and how the priesthood will yield to the will of the people and churches that have have adopted some very ungodly practices and theology because the pastor allowed it, never took a stand thought there's too many tithe payers that want to do it this way and if I drive them off we won't be able to pay the bills you can leave your stuff behind and walk out of that desolate place if you have to but you can't compromise but I'm not just going to pick on the pulpit today I'm going to throw the monkey back on your back these people You know, you just go a few chapters back in Exodus and you see about the 28th chapter where Aaron is officially declared, you're going to be the priest, Aaron. And of course, being the priest, he understands what his job is. His job is to lead the people in spiritual matters. Now, just four chapters later, which doesn't represent any specific passage of time, but it's very quickly from the time he's elected priest to the time he has his first real trial as a priest. What are you going to do when the people start rebelling? And, of course, we know that the story is, well, I'm going to go along with it. But that was the wrong decision. He was put in a position of being a priest so that he could, he could monitor and direct the actions of the people. His job that he failed miserably at, when the people came to him and said, this fellow Moses, which, after all, the, by the way, the, the language used, this fellow Moses. What do you mean, this fellow Moses? It's a very derisive uh, use of, of terminology. Who is this guy anyway that led us out here? You know who he is. He's Moses. He's God's spokes. He's God's front man. Is it this man, Moses? What does he know anyway? He's gone. They see the fire on the mountain. They assume that he died in the fire. And I don't know what else they assume, but the only thing I can assume is they think if Moses died in the fire, God did too. No Moses, no God. Because if they'd really believed that God was there regardless of Moses, it wouldn't have mattered. And here's, here's another freebie. Why is it God's always tethered to somebody in our life? When some pastor or some preacher, some pulpiteer fail, falls, people fall with him. Because no preacher, no God. Whenever you have a spouse that goes crazy and runs away and deserts you, no spouse, no God. When you have a loved one that dies, there's no God. God's greater than your spouse. He's greater than any preacher. He's greater than your loved one. He is the eternal one. Always has been, always will be. He's not tied to any person here on earth. But Israel didn't get that. No Moses, no God, let's make a God. What do they think happened to God? Aaron's responsibility was to stand up to the people and tell them, knock it off. 
We're not going to do this. If you do it, you will do it over my dead body. But I'm not making you a calf. We're not worshiping any calf. We're going to hold on and worship Jehovah God. Kill me if you have to, but as long as I'm here, we will serve the Lord. That was his responsibility. He never even once tried that. Never came close. Never argued. The priest, the first suggestion they have is, Make us a God. He said, well, get me some stuff to make it out of. He's right on top of that because he's trying to lead by figuring out where the people are going and staying in front of them all the time. You can't lead people by trying to go where they want to go. You have to lead where God, lead where God wants to take them. But it's not just preachers. Peter said, he's talking to the saints. He's talking to the saints. You who were once without mercy, but then you received mercy. That sets up who he's talking to. You who were without mercy, you had no mercy. You who were not a people, now God has made you a people. It's got all the language of the Old Testament in it. That Israel, they were not a people, but now they're the people. But now, Peter is taking all the types and the shadows of the Old Testament, and he's saying, here's how how it kind of works in the New Testament era. You sinners, you people without mercy, when you found mercy, now you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you might declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness, coming out of Egypt, coming out of bondage, coming out of this world. I am the God that brought you out. I am Jehovah God. You are the royal priesthood. You will worship me only. And you will show forth the praises of Him who called you out of darkness. So it's not just me because I happen to have a pulpit. You're a royal priesthood. And you have a responsibility to stand against the tide of this world you have a responsibility to remember this is the God that brought me out of the land of Egypt this is the God that brought me out of darkness and out of bondage you have a responsibility to stand against those people who are trying to corrupt the kingdom of God you are a royal priesthood you're called to stand for moral truth you're called to stand on God's unchanging word You are called out of darkness and you can't bow to the pressure of the people around you. You cannot pamper and indulge on their every whim. You can't. You can't join in the rebellion against God. You cannot do that. So it's time for you, royal priesthood, and me. Somebody stand up against this sin-saturated age and refuse to bow to the peer pressure and popularity that surrounds us and presses against us. It's time for you, the priesthood, to get some backbone. If there was ever a day and age in which people needed some backbone, it is today. It is now to stand up. The world is headed to hell on a bullet train, but it's time for you to stand up and say, I don't care what my family does. I don't care what my friends do. I don't care what the nation does. I don't care what my neighbors do. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord.
priesthood. Do your job. And it could have been so different. Can we just imagine for just a moment? What if Aaron would have stood up? What if he would have rebuked the spirit of rebellion, the spirit of idolatry, the spirit of this golden calf? What if he had led the people instead of following them? God would have backed him up. He wouldn't have held Aaron responsible for the failure of other people. And I'm urging you today, because of the day, the hour we're living in, I'm urging you today to rebuke the spirit of idolatry that is gripping our generation. Rebuke that spirit that pays greater homage to movie stars and things and people than they pay to God. Rebuke that materialism that spends all the money they want on themselves but can't even tithe to God. Rebuke those things that put God somewhere down the list and think it's okay because I got my dose of God on Sunday. I can do what I want. It's the spirit of idolatry. Rebuke that age that can't bother to crawl out of bed and go to church on Sunday because they got something else in mind that's more important. Rebuke the things that has more devotion to God, more devotion to the things, the people have more devotion to things than they do to God, more love for the world than they have for God. Throw out that golden calf. Tear down the Ashtoreth poles. And let there be no other God in your life besides Jehovah God. And love Him with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Bow your heads.